Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 103. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on January 22nd, 2023 in Austin, Texas. On the small chance you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Or at least we're doing our best. In fairness, we should probably say with as little presentism as possible, but that seems too wishy-washy for branding purposes. So every now and then, I completely blow the pronunciation of even English names, which is admittedly fairly lame. Phil from Pennsylvania sent me a note that I have incorrectly been pronouncing William Laud as loud rather than Laud. This was especially egregious on my part insofar as the archbishop's name is spelled L-A-U-D, as in laudable. I'll try to do better. On a more positive note, Phil also pointed out that David Crowther's History of England podcast is for the moment running almost parallel to this one. Looking at the reign of Charles I, the confrontation with Parliament, and so forth. Of course, that storied podcast is concerned with England, and this one is concerned with the Americans, so we emphasize different aspects of the story. I'll put a link in the show notes on the website to a couple of the relevant episodes if you want to have a listen. We have arrived at the Great Migration of the Puritans to Massachusetts, which effectively began in 1628 and would continue until 1640 or so, and then abruptly end. The result would be that for almost 200 years, the non-indigenous population of New England would consist almost entirely of the descendants of a group of religious refugees shaped by a particularly tumultuous moment in English political and religious life. If, on the small chance you are listening to this episode without having trudged through most of the others, you would be well served to listen to the last two at least, The Rise of the Puritans, Parts 1 and 2, before this one, so you know what the heck I'm talking about here. It also would perhaps enrich your experience to go back a couple of months and listen to our episode about Thomas Morton, the Lord of Misrule, who will make a cameo appearance this time. This history business is complicated. The New England of the mid-1620s consisted of indigenous tribes, of which the most powerful were the Pequots and Narragansetts along the southern New England coast, probably 200 pilgrims at Plymouth, a second tiny settlement at Weymouth that had returned after the fiasco at Wessagusset. We talked about that in the Pilgrim's Play for Keeps. Thomas Morton's partying little band at Marymount, today's Quincy and very few scattered English and French settlers, really almost hermits, living in single cottages and such at various points along the coast all the way up to Nova Scotia. For example, at Charlestown, there was a blacksmith named Thomas Walford who lived in a thatched and palisaded cabin. Across the river at the future site of Boston, there was an Episcopal clergyman named William Blackstone, whom... George Bancroft described as a courteous recluse, gifted with the impatience of restraint which belongs to the pioneer. A fellow named Samuel Maverick lived on the site of Logan Airport. 
These and others were the people whom William Bradford described as the stragglers who were supposedly put in jeopardy by Thomas Morton trading firearms to the Indians in the area. The most historically prominent of the stragglers was a salter, an expert at preserving fish, which was an important trade back in the day, named Roger Conant. Conant had come to Plymouth in 1624, but had left after a year or so, possibly because he did not like the fanatical separatism of the congregation there. Conant moved to Nantasket, a sandy peninsula that forms Hingham Bay just east of Weymouth and Quincy. We shall come back to Conant. But first, we have to go back to England, to the town of Dorchester in the West Country. Dorchester had been all but destroyed by a fire in 1613, which the pious citizens had interpreted as reflecting the wrath of God to punish them for not being sufficiently pious. The people of Dorchester aspired to purge their town of sin, and in the words of Francis Bremer, author of a recent biography of John Winthrop, make it a model of Christian community. Led by the Reverend John White, their agenda called for discipline, order, and charity. Now to Bremer, quote, One element of the campaign involved providing the children of the poor with rudimentary education and vocational training. Funds to support the effort came from many sources, including a contribution from the lottery that had been established to finance some of the costs of the Virginia Company. In 1622, a municipal brew house was founded primarily for the purpose of supporting these efforts from its profits. The Dorchester Company was conceived as a similar profit-making venture. Back to me. The Dorchester Company aspired to make money from fishing the New England coast, and in 1623 received a suitable patent from the Council for New England, which long-standing and attentive listeners will recall was controlled by Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, still the leading proponent of settlement in New England. Over the next couple of years, the Dorchester Company would establish a couple of very small settlements on Cape Ann, where Rockport, Massachusetts sits today. The fishing would be profitable, but the area of the settlements was not good for farming, and the people were poorly led. In 1625, the Dorchester Company hired Roger Conant, brother of one of its investors, to take charge of the 20 to 30 English at Cape Ann. In 1626 or so, he moved them to Numkiab, soon to be renamed Salem. And there they made a go of it. In fairly short order, the Dorchester Company concluded, no doubt correctly, that the Salem settlement would generate no meaningful profits for the town. The company summoned the settlers home and sent a ship to retrieve them. But the Reverend White, more concerned with the religious mission, sent a separate note to Conant, speaking for himself rather than the company, promising to round up new support if Conant and the other settlers would stay in New England. Conant rallied them, and by 1628, White made good on his commitment, forming a new company first called the New England Company, and then the Massachusetts Bay Company. The new company sent 50 new colonists, almost all of them Puritan, to Namkiag under the leadership of John Endicott as governor. Endicott did not make new friends easily. Quoting John Barry from his book, 
Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul. In fact, Endicott did his duty, had considerable competencies, and was honest. But he was not quite so sociable and loving as the company board imagined. Little is known about his early years, but he seems to have soldiered in some of the most brutal religious battles in Europe. He had a high opinion of himself and a combative personality, along with bluster, ferocity, and pride. His seal reflected him. A death's head, a skull with one horizontal bone. He was a man absolutely true to his convictions, but also easily convinced, which made him variable, unpredictable, and therefore doubly dangerous. Upon his arrival, he quickly outraged not only Conant, but all the old planters, by immediately declaring his authority over the settlement, including over their land, dictating rules, and according to an opponent, order that he that should refuse to subscribe to his authority must pack. After angry protests, the company in London and he backed off, guaranteed old planters all lands which they have formerly manured, plus a further proportion to be worked out in a role in government. The new arrivals and old planters reconciled over this agreement, and so did Endicott and Conant personally. To commemorate it, and perhaps also to remind themselves of the need for it, they renamed Namkiag Salem, Hebrew for peace. Back to me. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that it was Endicott, who took time from his busy schedule in the fall of 1628 to march over to Thomas Morton's settlement at Marymount. Miles Standish had been there earlier in the year to bring Morton to heel for various alleged sins, and Morton himself was on an island offshore when Endicott arrived in the fall. Here's what we said about Endicott's raid a few months back, quoting me, quoting Professor William Heath. On September 6, 1628, while Morton was on the Isle of Shoals, John Endicott, a narrow, rigid, and choleric Puritan, known to his admirers as Strong, Valiant John, arrived at Numpiog, Salem, with the vanguard of what would in two years become the Great Migration. Although he had no legal jurisdiction to do so, at some point he went to Marymount, caused that maypole to be cut down, and rebuked the remnant of Morton's men for their profaneness, and admonished them. The place was renamed Mount Dagon, after the god to whom the Philistines made sacrifices— just before Samson, in the midst of their sport and when their hearts were merry, pulled the pillars of their temple down, slaying himself and many of his enemies. No one died when Endicott cut down Morton's maypole, and contrary to Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, apparently no one was compelled to leave or convert to Puritanism. Back to me. One of the less religious reasons Endicott raided Marymount was to steal Morton's food. Morton excelled at trading with the Indians, both because he genuinely liked them, and they knew that, and probably because he also sold them guns, powder, and the means to make their own bullets. The new settlers at Salem were very short of food, and Endicott, whom Morton would call Captain Littleworth to go along with Captain Shrimp for Standish, took most of Morton's vittles, leaving him only enough to celebrate Christmas. 
In one of life's little ironies, Morton's food, obtained by a merry old English anti-Puritan Anglican by disreputable means, would keep the Puritans of Salem alive during the rough winter of 1628 and 29. It's now the spring of 1629, and a lot's going on. On January 13th, the Plymouth Colony got an exclusive right called the Warwick Patent, or Kennebec Patent, for the trading post Cushnock, now Augusta, Maine, that they had founded the previous year on the banks of the Kennebec River. Edward Winslow had gone up there to open a new supply of furs out of the prying eyes of New Netherland and the Pequots. In Salem, some of the new settlers have died, and the survivors are getting hungry. Somewhere in the North Atlantic, a Puritan fleet of six ships and 350 settlers, including as many as 180 indentured servants, is en route from the Isle of Wight to Salem. It had departed on February 11th, or maybe in March. The sources differ, and I don't really have the energy to adjudicate the discrepancy, and would reach Salem in the third week of June. On March 4th, the Massachusetts Bay Company would receive a royal charter, And only six days later, on March 10th, Charles I would dissolve Parliament after the dramatic events of the last episode. Also in March, the men of Plymouth would re-elect William Bradford as governor of that colony for an eighth one-year term. I trust you got all of that. The 350 settlers who arrived in Salem that June were a bit rattled by what they saw a muddy little cluster of ten or so buildings, including a new house for the governor. About a hundred of them stayed there, and the rest moved on to Charlestown, where they moved in on Thomas Walford, the blacksmith who, with his wife, had been living a sweet life in libertarian solitude. There's very little chance that he appreciated the arrival of 250 greenhorns. We shall return to them. Meanwhile, in the summer of 1629, three events transpired in England that would profoundly influence the course of Massachusetts and therefore American history. The first was that a fellow named John Winthrop had heard about the Massachusetts Bay Company and was interested in getting involved. Winthrop was a Puritan lawyer, a thoughtful lay preacher, a judge, and financially stressed because of, well, relatives, and the need to live in accordance with his rising social status. He was also too honest to benefit, at least as much as he might have done, from various judicial positions that had conferred great personal wealth on other judges. We do not know precisely the circumstances under which Winthrop became involved with the Bay Company, but by the summer of 1629, he was the principal author of an argument in favor of the settlement of Massachusetts Bay by a lot of Puritans. It was, in effect, a brief in support of the company, usually referred to as general observations. We shall return to that, too. Sorry for all the recursion in this episode. A lot's going on all at once. You know, you got to deal with it. The second critical event was the decision by the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Company to transfer the government of the plantation, as it was called, the English called their settlements or colonies, plantations back then, to Massachusetts, along with a physical charter document. By this time, English gentry with a yen for overseas settlement would have learned the sad lesson of the Virginia Company. 
which suffered through 12 years of long-distance micromanagement from London before it finally transferred at least some responsibility across the Atlantic in 1619. Beyond that, they felt it would be easier to recruit new settlements to go to New England if they had some assurance that London would not impose silly burdens on them from months away across the trackless ocean. Finally, the transfer of the physical charter was important because under the law of the time, it was extremely difficult, if not impossible, to amend a contract or charter without having the original in hand. If the powers that be in London wanted to wrest control of the company back to England, they would have to come and fetch the charter from Boston. Silly as that sounds to those of us who depend on docusigning PDFs to do our business. The third important event of 1629 was the election of John Winthrop, who had, in a few short months, earned the respect of the company's directors to be the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Winthrop was a relative newcomer to the group, so how was it that he was so quickly elected governor? John Barry gives us a nice capsule summary of Winthrop's background and temperament. Quote, at the time, Winthrop was not a large figure in England. At 41 years of age, in an age when men had well started upon, if not fulfilled, all that they would achieve in life, he was not a man of great accomplishment, not a man who consorted with or maneuvered around great lords of the royal court, not a man who had risen far of his own. Nor had he been singed by some unachieved ambition or hope that made him restless and unsettled. Rather, he lived a life of diligence and duty. He was calm and calming to those around him, a measured man, a man of intelligence, perception, and weight. He saw the breadth and depth of other men and of things. He saw consequences. He gave ballast to a room. But if he was a man seemingly at rest... That appearance hid an enormous but perfectly balanced tension between his great passions and his determined control of himself. Barry, it should be said, kind of likes Winthrop. His passion really showed itself, yet nevertheless informed his life. That passion was his religiosity, and he felt it in a way as intensely and personally as any intimacy between man and woman. That passion filtered through his character and circumstances, would ultimately transform him into a man of consequence. He would become, as even one of his severest critics later conceded, a man of men. Back to me. All of that makes Winthrop's argument for colonization, the aforementioned general observations, much more interesting. So what were those reasons? Well, the big ones were to carry the gospel into America and thus to raise a bulwark against the kingdom of Antichrist, which the Jesuits labor to raise in all parts of the world. With the Protestant churches throughout Europe being brought to desolation, it cannot be but that the like judgment is coming upon us, and who knoweth but that God hath prepared this place for a refuge for many whom he meaneth to save." Englith groaneth under her inhabitants. The economy was in a shambles due to the rapid decline of the English woolen cloth trade and poverty had spread widely. Inflation had soared so that no man's estate will suffice him 
to keep sale with his equal, and he that doeth not must live in contempt. Oxford and Cambridge universities, the fountains of learning and religion, are so corrupted and expensive that many children of best wits and fairest hopes are perverted, corrupted, and utterly overthrown by the multitude of evil examples and licentious government of those seminaries. Perhaps ironically, I certainly would say so, the Purins would found Harvard, of all places, only seven years later. Since the earth is the Lord's garden, and he hath given it to the sons of men to be tilled and improved, it was foolish to expend enormous labor and expense to hold and improve a few acres in England when the same effort would transform much more of the land in the new world. Like most Englishmen, Winthrop did not account for the land claims of the Indians, who had not in their lights tilled and improved the land as God required. Winthrop was not disingenuous. The religious construction of God's will was sincere. But as Roger Williams and others would notice, the facts of the matter were quite different. You can see in this list the basis for a fairly recent argument among historians. Were settlers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony primarily motivated by religion or by economic difficulties? In modern terms, were they refugees from political and religious oppression, or were they looking for economic opportunity? That debate is arcane even by the standards of this podcast, so I'm going to pass over it other than to report that my own view is that it isn't really possible to disentangle those motives, much as economic historians would love to do. There are at least two reasons for this. First, the Puritans regarded economic success, among other things, as external evidence that a person might be saved. If the economy stagnates or even contracts, as a practical matter, it becomes a lot more difficult to become a visible saint in the Puritan sense of it. Second, the Puritans regarded England's economic problems as God's punishment for having fallen away from the true religion. In that formulation, the economic crisis, which was pretty bad in the late 1620s, was derivative and downstream of the religious oppression. Regardless, England was in trouble both economically and otherwise, and the Puritans believed that the source of that trouble was the corruption of its religion under papist influences, promoted by James I, Charles I, and finally Bishop Laud. They needed a fresh start, but they were English and did not want to live under foreign traditions and foreign laws. Even modestly attentive listeners of recent vintage will remember that back in 1607, Sir Edward Coke had drafted the Virginia Company Charter and established that English migrants to the New World retain the rights and privileges of Englishmen under law. So it would be in Massachusetts, even if far from the invasive enforcers of conformity in the Church of England. By the fall of 1629, Winthrop threw himself into planning the voyage that would become known as Winthrop's Fleet, the big founding moment in the Puritan Great Migration. Let's go to Francis Bremer's description of the preparations. Quote, The first years of a new colony were always arduous. 
and many settlements had failed in their first year because of inadequate preparations. In the case of Massachusetts, a beachhead had been secured by John Endicott, but the magnitude of what was to be attempted in 1630 was immense. A sense of what was entailed can be gathered from a 1629 list of supplies that the company had determined essential to dispatch to the colony. It was headed by ministers, but was primarily comprised of items more geared to sustain material existence. Wheat, barley, oats, beans, and peas for cultivation. The stones of various fruits to plant, including peaches, plums, and cherries. Seeds for other fruits, such as apples, quince, and pomegranates. Currant plants, woad seed and saffron heads. Potatoes, hop roots, hemp seed and flaxseed, tame turkeys and rabbits, linen and woolen cloth, pewter bottles, brass ladles and spoons, and copper kettles of French manufacture. Interjection here for a second. The turkeys and the potatoes, at least, had originally come from the New World and had been so established in England that they were sent back as supplies with the Puritans. Kind of think that's cool. Back to Bremer. Other necessities dispatched were arms for 100 men. These included 80 muskets with four-foot-long barrels, six long fowling pieces, five and a half feet in length, ten full muskets with matchlocks, bandoliers and bullet bags, 100 swords and belts, 60 coslets, 60 pikes, and 20 half-pikes, eight pieces of land ordnance, cannon for the fort, and 12 barrels of powder. Drums, flags, and halberds for the sergeants were also on the list. Added at the bottom was a large fishing net. Back to me. In addition to all that military equipment, there were also mastiffs. Sadly, history does not record their names. And, of course, there were the usual vast quantities of food for the voyage in the first winter. Beer, wine, thousands of hardtack biscuits, butter, cheese, and a hogshead of pork, and so forth. Historians who write about all this do so with some measure of amazement. But it's worth remembering, as I know all you do that the English had been sending substantial expeditions to North America since the third supply of Jamestown in 1610, now 20 years in the past. There would have been plenty of people around who knew the supplies a big expedition would need, and there were merchants who would be delighted to sell them those supplies. By mid-March, a fleet of 11 ships rode in the harbor at Southampton. Supplies were loaded. 700 departing settlers gathered with their baggage, and New England beckoned. The Puritan minister John Cotton, who would follow on a later voyage, gave a sermon. Then John Winthrop, not himself a minister but a lay preacher of not inconsiderable accomplishment, stepped up and delivered a sermon called A Model of Christian Charity. It's an important document about which an enormous amount has been written over the almost four centuries since it was delivered. In 1999, on the eve of the new millennium, the New York Times asked Harvard theologian Peter Gomes to nominate the greatest sermon of the last thousand years. Gomes selected a model of Christian charity. 
Whoa. The one-two punch of the New York Times and Harvard must not be ignored. The sermon is indeed worth your time. You'll be a better person for having read it, or at least you can impress people by saying you did. So, of course, there's a useful link in the show notes on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Several things should be said about this moment. The first is that Winthrop said nothing unexpected by the people who heard the sermon. Of all the diaries and letters of the passengers sailing with the Winthrop fleet, not one mentions the sermon. The sermon would not be published for 200 years, and it became important less for what it said than for how its message was understood in hindsight. Which gets to the second point. There's controversy over whether the sermon actually was delivered after Cotton spoke at Southampton or whether it was written and delivered at sea. That bit really doesn't matter. I'm just pointing it out so I don't get a bunch of, you know, actually emails on the point. Winthrop's sermon described the opportunity for moral purpose in the settlement of New England and that if the Puritans followed the law of God, they would serve as an example of piety charity, and love for all the world. Here's the famous bit, slightly modernized for reading out loud. Quote, We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies, when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God and his work that we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Powerful stuff, which is why American politicians from John Adams to Ronald Reagan and beyond have quoted Winthrop or alluded to him. And the idea that the eventual United States should serve as an example to the world first proposed by John Winthrop in 1630, would suffuse far more than presidential speeches. How much of our political discourse even today has to do with a national compulsion to serve as a good example, even if we disagree wildly on what counts as a good example? I've got news for you folks. Most other peoples in the world, especially outside of the Anglosphere, don't worry very much about what constitutes setting a good national example for all mankind. When you see an American politician, journalist, or public intellectual do that, remember that John Winthrop did it first. The fleet sailed in late March and spotted land, Mount Desert Island off the coast of Maine in early June, and reached Salem on June 12th. George Bancroft, writing in the 19th century, said that, quote, Winthrop and his companions came full of hope. They found the colony in an unexpected condition of distress. Above 80 had died the winter before. 
All the corn and bread among them was hardly a fit supply for a fortnight. The survivors of 180 servants who had been sent over in the two years before at a great expense, instead of having prepared a welcome, thronged to the newcomers to be fed and were set free from all engagements for their labor, great as was the demand for it, was worth less than their support. Meaning, of course, that better to let the servants fend for themselves than to allocate rations to them. History does not record, or at least not obviously so, how many of those servants would survive. Salem was, in short, in no condition to handle a huge population increase. That summer, the passengers of the Winthrop fleet dispersed to Charlestown, where there already were 200 or more English, and Roxbury, Dorchester, and Watertown. The settlers raced to build shelter before winter. There would be no time to clear fields and plant meaningful crops. Winthrop stepped up. He wore plain attire, drank water rather than imported beverages, and worked alongside everybody else when he wasn't otherwise engaged with administrative matters. This was a far less hierarchical world than the English settlements in Virginia had been, or would be for some time. Charlestown was temporarily the biggest settlement, but it had a shortage of fresh water. Its single spring was inaccessible at high tide, so it could not support the increased population. But there was a free-flowing spring on the peninsula across the river. In September, Winthrop and at least 150 others moved there and named the site Boston. It would be rough sledding for more than two years. Boston's first pub would not open until March 4, 1633. This is a good place to stop, or rather pause. We will have much more to say about Puritan Massachusetts, although I haven't quite worked out the order of things and how we will get back to Virginia, which is also overdue. Oh, well, serendipity is our middle name. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a robust rating on Apple and follow me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>